Well, our scripture reading for today comes from Titus, the first chapter, verses 10 through 16. We're going to put those verses up on the screen and read them responsibly, responsibly, and responsibly. <laughs> and uh, I will say, just as a reminder, where we were last week, the passage that we read had everything to do with qualifications for leadership within the church. We read through those list of requirements. This is what leadership within the church must look like, act like, be like. Well, what we're going to read this morning is really the other side of that coin. It, it, it's really the exact opposite. So the things that we're going to read aren't necessarily the stuff they make greeting cards out of. But it's there for a warning against what it looks like if we fail to understand and obey what we read last week. So let's all stand for the reading of God's Word. Titus chapter 1, verse 10. I'll read the first. We'll all join together on the second and continue in that pattern. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable disobedient, unfit for any good work. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, with our Bibles open and having read your almighty word, may we understand the truth of it. May we be able to understand what Paul was saying. And having understood that, give us what is necessary to be obedient here and now. We thank you again for your word. Be our teacher. May we be your student. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. From time to time, I think it helpful to reread difficult passages of Scripture in what is known as a paraphrase. And when I say paraphrase, that's just exactly what is meant by that. It's Scripture, but put in another way or in other words by someone. And J.P. Phillips has a very good paraphrase. And although this is not Scripture, we wouldn't call it Scripture. Sometimes it's helpful. So I thought after reading through that, which is not only wordy, it sounds dramatic, like we walked right into a conversation with someone that we probably would back out of if given the opportunity. It's very... Uh, 
precise words that he's using here and in the negative form. So you just listen and let me read this to you in someone's paraphrase and just listen along. It won't match up with your translation, but let the pieces of information stack up and perhaps we'll see the picture more clearly. But there are many, especially among the Jews, who will not recognize authority, who talk nonsense and yet in so doing have managed to deceive men's minds. They must be silenced, for they upset the faith of whole households, teaching what they have no business to teach for the sake of what they can get. One of them, one of their prophets, has said, Men of Crete are always liars, evil and beastly, lazy and greedy. There is truth in this testimonial of theirs, so don't hesitate to reprimand them sharply, for you want them to be sound and healthy Christians, with proper contempt for Jewish fairy tales and orders issued by men who have forsaken the path of truth. Everything is wholesome to those who are themselves wholesome, but nothing is wholesome to those who are themselves unwholesome and who have no faith in God. Their very minds are, and consciences are diseased. They profess to know God, but their actual behavior denies their profession, for they are obviously vile and rebellious, and when it comes to doing any real good, they are frauds. So I titled this morning's message, you may have seen it in the bulletin, as Fakes, Phonies, and Frauds. I'm not sure if you have ever been defrauded, had, ripped off, taken advantage of. If you ever had, you're probably still a bit chapped about it. Because when that happens, usually it involves some form of deception, which is a lie, and you didn't see that lie coming or you wouldn't have been had, right? So we always feel many different emotions in such a setting. But I should have seen this coming. I should have been smarter than this. I should have paid more attention. And maybe it was an impulse buy, or maybe trust, or too much trust in the other party, or maybe just lack of any real study on our own. Who knows? It's your story, not mine. But what we're referring to this morning is not necessarily fraud in business or buying a car you shouldn't have bought that broke down later. This is what happens inside a church when the previous passages regarding what is best for leadership are not understood and obeyed. And what's important for us right here this morning... and. I, I took the passage we read using the ESV and I just kept the words that are not the type of words you want said about yourself. Here they are, just to do this a third time. Insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, defiled, unbelieving, detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And what do you do with those? You rebuke them sharply and that's because they must be silenced. So when we read that type of thing in a church like this, we run the risk of misunderstanding what it's meant to be by misunderstanding where we fit in that. Because most of us would like to say, well, I don't fit in that category of Scripture that we just read this morning. 
And whenever you feel that way, it's, it's probably a safe bet to go ahead and do a depravity check. And a depravity check is easily done through Scripture. You can start in the Old Testament with Jeremiah 17, 9. For the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked or sick. Who can know it? I can't know it. You can't know it. It will lie to us. Jesus was even more uh, straightforward in John eight forty four. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And Jesus is calling humanity the children of the devil until they're redeemed and then become children of grace. But the grand theme of what we're looking at today underneath all those words is uh, the banner that really is so evidently seen all through Scripture. It's as if it's a cosmic battle between the truth and a lie. We see that all the way in the beginning of, of Genesis with the Garden of Eden, and we're seeing that right here in this passage. It's as basic as a Sunday school lesson for children. God tells the truth, the devil tells a lie, because he is a liar. And that's where the first sin came from. It involved a lie. You won't die. You'll just be smart like God is. We'll come back to that later as we conclude this. But because of depravity and our depravity check that we're doing right here now, our default within our hearts is to be on the lie end of that battle, not the truth end of it. All of us, each of us. Because of our depravity, put another way, a normal human being, apart from God's grace, will lie and deceive to advantage themselves and disadvantage the other. That's our default position. And the reason I bring all this up and go to this length at the beginning of this message is that if we don't understand that, we're going to have a hard time understanding a passage of Scripture like this that is calling out those things within people that are part of the church. Now, we're Bible students here, and I've been able to understand that in the short time we've been together. So we're not the type of person that would read through this and say, Paul's being dramatic, so I don't know if I buy all this. If he just went home and got a nap, he'd come back and he'd be all right later. We know better than that. But what we would do instinctively, without even thinking perhaps, is to just say, well, I'm not in this group that he's talking about. I'll pray for the people in that group. And maybe I'll get a copy of this sermon and send it to somebody that's in that group. <laughs> but we'd like to conveniently step away a few steps. And at worst, we just start thinking about something else. This sermon is not necessarily addressed to my home. Well, that would be a wrong assumption because the starter kit for everything we just read about lives right here. And apart from the grace of God, we'd be further down the path of total shipwreck of our lives. Without Him, we're, we're lost and with no hope of any audience with God the Father. 
So most of the church's troubles are not from the outside, but from the inside, because that's where most of our troubles come from, from the inside, from our heart that's desperately wicked. So with all that as somewhat of an introduction to this passage, we need to make sure um, we may not be among this group, but each of us has the capacity to be involved in this group. And as such, we must be warned. So verse 10, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. The word for, the first word of verse 10, is what ties us to last week and introduces the justification for the requirement that the elder must be able to expound and defend the truth from verse 9. If you back up one verse, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and so rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. So the qualifications of your pastor puts him in the position to be able to see, call out, and separate from those who are not qualified. So the way we'll break this apart and organize our, our thoughts for this passage of Scripture this morning, there'll be three points. And these are three marks of a false teacher. And if you like looking at negatives like different sides of the coin, if we looked at qualified ministers and leaders and elders, pastoral staff last week, this is disqualified leadership. The first thing that we see here is that they are insubordinate. That means they are rebellious or unruly. Your translation may use either of those three words, insubordinate, rebellious, and unruly. But what that amounts to is an unaccountability. You could say they are freelance. That's the first mark of the person who's not qualified to lead a church. They operate under no oversight. Beware of spiritual leaders who publicly call themselves spiritual leaders. They may use terms like bishop or prophet or apostle or God's anointed. Yet they have no mechanism, no one empowered to strip them of their title should they dishonor the God who they profess to represent. Does that make sense? There's no, there's no accountability structure. There's no church tying them down. No, even association or denomination. Something. If only the words of Almighty God written in Scripture that would check them should they get out of line. But they are insubordinate. These, these are the types of, of, of men who can go around saying, I have a word from the Lord. As if it's his only, not yours. Rather than saying, I have a copy of God's word from all time. And it's been the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's not ever going to change. It'll never be different. So let's go look at the old book. Now this one's insubordinate. He's distanced himself from that. And he has something new. Something different. Something in addition to. Or much worse, maybe a subtraction. Then there are empty talkers. This indicates the meaninglessness of their speech. And you can always spot those who don't teach the truth by the way they can say absolutely nothing and do it very beautifully. 
You ever been around somebody that just go on and on and on and on a lesson or, or even a message? You go home. Boy, that was a great sermon. I wish I knew what it was about. <laughs> kind of reminds you of uh, what we call our State of the Union address sometimes. What in the world are they, are they talking about? And for so long, and with so much applause. And why are one group standing while the other's sitting, and then vice versa? What is, what is the content? What is being said? Uh, you could say this actually amounts to empty promises. And if these men are supposed to be representing the God of glory, those clouds should be able to deliver the rain. But they're empty clouds. There's no rain. It just looks like it. May hear some thunder, see some lightning. No rain. Empty promises. Maybe it's one of these places that give you five steps for this or affirmation to make you feel better for that. But at the end of the day, there must be some truth. God's given us His truth and His Word, and it must be there. Otherwise, it's coming from the perspective of the man speaking, which you know is worth about what? Two cents. Then there are deceivers who came through the back door and bit by bit have taken away or added to the truth. Remember, most of the church's troubles are not from the outside but the inside. A lot of churches spend a lot of time talking about cults on the outside of the church to know who you're dealing with or how to witness to this type of person. or the other. That's not a waste of time. That's good to know. But the most vile of problems come from within the church. I would dare say the prosperity gospel is probably uh, more damaging than some of those others when you get right down to it. To teach people within the walls of the church that basically come to Jesus and he'll figure out and fix all your problems. As some sort of a galactic maid, you get an intercom when you walk the aisle and you get to ask him to fluff your pillow anytime you need it. That's not what this is meant to be. But that's the type of thing that can come from deception when you get away from the Word and begin to add or take away things from it. That's known as the deceiver or the deceivers. And then he says, especially from this group, he uses the term circumcision to describe. And the only reason why they use that, elsewhere he takes them head on. But these are Greek people who have taken on Judaism as custom and think that before you become a Christian you need to become a good Jew along with all their traditions and customs rites and rituals including namely circumcision Paul fought long and hard with the apostles the elders in Jerusalem to make sure that had nothing to do with grace or salvation so we look at the others suspect and just again for that uh, depravity check you know, there was one other New Testament apostle who kind of got in the wrong place at the wrong time with the same group of people and was found out that he wouldn't eat with certain people that didn't act a certain way. His name was Peter, and Paul withstood him to the face. Of all the things in Scripture that I'd like to just get in the time machine and go visit, I think I'd like to see that. But there's our depravity check. It's within our own heart to get into these 
places sometimes that's not the picture of Christ and the way he shows himself to us. Number two, their motives are selfish. That's verse 11. He says they must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. He's already made the point they ought not be teaching these things. But he gives us the reason why they're doing it, their motives, and it's shameful gain. And the result is upsetting whole families or splitting uh, families uh, apart. They're teaching what is profitable to them. They figure out a way to be able to help themselves by cherry-picking certain things that work for them. I had a friend a couple or three years ago that sent me a YouTube link to uh, a piece from Joey Oliver. Not Joey Oliver, John Oliver. Uh, he's the guy with the late-night show on HBO. I don't have HBO. I don't have cable. I don't watch it. The only thing I've ever seen is this. And when he sent it to me, he said... Warning, put on your ministerial hazmat suit before you watch this. It's shot through with profanity, but this guy's going to take the legs out from under uh, the TV evangelists. He says at the beginning, churches do great things and are full of great people, and this is not about that. But as far as these TV evangelists go, and he just went from one thing to another. And what seemed to be the most damaging of all is this seed faith type ministry where these men talk people into taking what little money they have as a seed and putting it into the ground which is their ministry and they promise them to be blessed many times over the worst of it was a guy who said if you're drowning in credit card debt you put another thousand dollars on that credit card to our ministry and the lord will take care of that balance for you now, that's the extreme case of, of teaching for shameful gain, things they ought not teach. But he had uh, family members whose mothers who had cancer gave all that they had, hoping that that might get them closer to a cure or something like that. Um, that's awful. And then there's the goofy. Uh, Dad used to tell if it fit in the story that he had where he was actually sent a prayer cloth in an envelope it's probably back in the 80s when did a lot of mailings that way and it's a big letter we need your help but in order for you to help us we've given you part of our anointed prayer cloth once you put this in your wallet if you carry this around in your wallet you'll notice that your wallet will have more money in it over time we want you to take some of that money and send it back to us so dad wrote back to them with the return address. After reading of your need and good conscience, I cannot take this from you. In fact, I've chosen to send it back to you, hoping that you'll put it in your wallet. <laughs> and maybe it'll do for you what you promised that it'll do for me. This is teaching what you ought not teach for shameful gain. And there are characters and clowns that do this type of thing. But think again about the prosperity gospel. And preaching to a bunch of people that God wants you to be rich and healthy and wealthy and wise. You can live 
a larger profile if that's what you're preaching, but none of that is from Scripture. Coming from the man who died for us, saying that the foxes and the birds had it better than he did, having no place to lay his head. So Paul's doing a good job of exposing these things, some of them closer to home than others. But number three, their behavior is deplorable. This is verse 12 through 16. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Now what he's doing here is he's quoting someone. And this is brilliant on Paul's part. He's an outsider. He's not a Cretan. And he knows that Titus also... Uh, and they're putting into order things that are out of place. And he's writing this official letter to be passed around the house churches in the general area on the island of Crete. And he wants to say something that coming from him would probably be a little too much because he doesn't know them like they know each other. So what he does is he quotes from one of their prophets, a local, perhaps a, a poet of sorts, who said of himself and the others that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So the quotation here, using their words against them, establishes the picture he wants to paint without exposing himself to the charge of being anti-Cretan. It's a very good way to get his point across, unscathed. And then in verse 13, what he says is, this testimony is true. I agree with him. It's a rough lot, you Cretans. Just make sure that they see the contrast between what he's described as qualified elders and those who are not. Then he follows with, therefore, because of what was just said, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth. The, the Jewish myths and commands of the peoples goes back to that party he was referring to, which just represent a list of extras and add-ons. Jesus plus something. Always beware of Jesus plus something. Jesus gave us plenty. And when he left us, he said, go and teach them what I have commanded you. He didn't say, and feel free to add things if you'd like, if it suits you or your people. Must be very careful about that. Now note the reasoning for the sharp rebuke, that they may be sound. That means that their faith may be healthy, healthy faith. Sound, altogether, complete, all the parts are working. And then to kind of cap all that off, in verse 15 here, to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. This is where he starts to get very specific in the line that he is drawing between the qualified leadership and the disqualified leadership. It's very easy to see it here. And when he says, to the pure, all things are pure... To the one who's in the Word and their mind is renewed by the Word and the Holy Spirit lives within them, producing the fruits of the Spirit, everything seems to be working well. And day by day, little by little, they're more like Christ 
the that day than they were the day before, and the next day a little more like they were than the previous day. Just like John the Baptist, he's increasing, they are decreasing. There's that, and then there are, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. They don't understand any of that or get that. To put it very crudely, a dirty old man can take the most pure of things or ideas and make them dirty. And he's saying at a certain point, you're, 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 you're not just close, it's night and day. And to put into a position of leadership someone who everything, even the pure things are impure, you're going to reap the, the damage of such a decision. So Paul has described quite a pitiful picture here of what it looks like. Again, our depravity check. He hasn't even gotten started in reference to what he'd said in Romans to describe what the, the human heart apart from grace looks like. So he's not inventing a, a new... There's not a new category for people that we would all agree should just go straight to hell. That off Hitler and people like that. No, all of us are capable of the very same things if we believe the theological truth of depravity so he's gone to length here he spent more verses talking about the disqualified leadership than the qualified to make sure that we knew what it looked like and perhaps even to see if some of it actually sounded like something we're familiar with at least on the inside where we know ourselves maybe perhaps like no one else does so what do we make of all this how do we apply this it, it Paul didn't spend seven verses just to say you know what I had that on my chest that's for you your mileage may vary this is important so why is it important and what do we make of it well he's gone to great lengths to, in chapter one which was on leadership to draw a clear line of distinction between those who are qualified to lead and those who are not we learned from that that leadership matters that your church's success or failure is based on it. That a church will never grow higher or further than its leadership as far as its character. And we also see in here and other places that it's the congregation's responsibility if the church leadership is not where it should be that they fix that. And in a congregationally ruled church, 51% of the vote can send that man packing and should if he looks to be unqualified. But he's taken more than steps than just this. This isn't all that Paul has said in chapter 1. And actually, uh, we can make the case that he's beginning to set up his argument for chapter 2. He's drawing a clear line of distinction between those who trust in God and those whose trust is in themselves. There's, there's, it's very clear to see that the problem with these false teachers they're on their own they don't tell the truth and their behavior does not show any Christ likeness so he's drawing a clear line between those who trust God those who are dependent on God those elders and all those qualifications that make sure of it and then those who trust in themselves so let's go back to where we started this is how we'll end we started talking about the difference between truth and a lie 
and that that's been going on since the beginning of the ages. That when Eve was approached by the snake, it wasn't necessarily that once she'd made her mind up, she determined to go shake her fist in the face of God for treating her awful. No, I think she enjoyed that relationship, same as Adam. They lived in paradise. They had everything they needed and one thing they were told to stay away from, but it looks as if they were convinced by the testimony of the devil that they actually wanted that or needed that too. So they took what they weren't supposed to have. Here's what I think it looked like, or you could describe it as. What's so wrong with being the smartest person in the room? What's wrong with having everything together? What's wrong with being able to make a decision on your own? What's wrong with wanting to stand on your own two feet? Because really that's what sin is. It's an independent attitude. It doesn't look like evil and witchcraft and, 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 and all those things that we would assign with, with pictures and images of, of dark and, and, and red and, and destruction. Remember what sin is, folks. It's a lie. And the better the lie, the more likely that you'll take it and be had, ripped off. Eve knew instantly, I'm sure, as well as Adam, that this isn't going to pay what we thought it would. So this idea of wanting to have everything our way, self-dependence, self-reliance, self-awareness, that's the starter kit for doing things anti-God. Not that we have a problem with Him, we just don't need Him. And that might be the very seeds of this awful list of things that Paul is describing here. Who wouldn't want to be the smart person in the room? That's where we remember our depravity check. If we were to jump down, and if you want to, you can turn. It's probably there on the same page. But if you look at chapter 3, in verse 3, this is where Paul is going. And this is the best way I know to, to draw that line of distinction between those who depend on the Lord and those who don't, those who are true, those who are false. Verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish. Here's another list. Disobedient, led astray. That means they were, they were conned. Slaves to various passions and pleasures. Passing our days in malice and envy. Hated by others and hating one another. I'll turn 40 next month. And uh, it's certainly old enough to know that that's pretty much the way the world goes around, isn't it? Slaves to various passions and pleasures. Paul would say, I don't know why I do the things I don't want to do. And if we're honest with ourselves, we answer the same way. Passing our days angry and envious. Mad at some and want what others have. People we don't even like. Spend our money to try to impress them. It sounds goofy. It's where we live. Hated by others and hating one another. Verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us from that. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, 
by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's the difference. They're washed and made new by the Holy Spirit. The only way to get rid of Jeremiah 17, 9 is by John 3, 16. By the blood of the cross. The only hope we've got of looking like Christians is to be adopted by God the Father. There's no other way around it. He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by His grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Because of the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior we can say that look at verse 3 again we ourselves were we once were reminds you of the song doesn't it? The way we were. Isn't it great to say that's the way we were but not anymore. There's your line of distinction, separation. So we haven't gotten there yet, but Paul is introducing the concept he will stress in chapter 2. And here it is. This is where we'll start out next week. Believing is behaving. If you're a son or daughter of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, you will need to look like it. And if you don't, there's suspicion as to whether or not you're actually his child. And it'll be tough to look through that. And it's quite sobering for some as they realize, you know, I have all this knowledge of Scripture, but when it comes right down to it, I don't know if I really look like one of His or not. So genuine belief in the truth of God produces a lifestyle of godly behavior. And the absence of good deeds is good cause for suspicion. Now let's finish this out with verse 16 because this is how Paul describes those who don't get the job they profess to know God but they deny him by their works hasn't happened to them yet they might be in the church but he hasn't saved them from those things and washed them and renewed them and made them brand new and when we get into that we're going to spend a lot of time on what happens to a person when God says you're mine I'm adopting you and you'll be my child. The Bible is a good question to put. This might help a person decide which camp they're in. Is the Bible a resource for advice and teaching? Kind of like a book on a shelf. If I need it, I've got it. I know a little bit about it. It's helped me in the past. It can help me in the future. It's a good resource. Or is it the source for your life? and your obedience it's one or the other it's either something or it's everything and I think the difference is evident so believing is behaving and that by the book let's bow in prayer Father in heaven thank you so much for your word and it's work that it does on our hearts thinking through these things that we may easily shift into someone else's yard if we pay attention to the living cutting exposing word of God there are pieces of this inside us but because of grace because of redemption because of justification because of sanctification 
we're able step by step to look more like you and less like ourselves. May you impress upon us the necessity if we ever hope to win anybody into your kingdom, we must look like you. We must act like you. We must love like you. So, Lord, we thank you for our time together with each other in your word this morning. We ask that you bind this to our hearts. Having understood it, may we be obedient. We ask this in your name. Amen. Mark Massengill will come and lead us in prayer, and then we'll sing, God be with you, till we meet again. Pray with me, please. Father, we stand here today, and your truth is placed before us as a marker. We're given the challenge in this world we live in, how we handle it, how we apply it to our lives, and how we project it to those we come in contact with in this world that has fallen and dismisses you. Give us strength in the days ahead as we leave this room. We lift up James and Lauren Peavy from Baptist Mid-Missions as they take your truth and give it to the people of Dominican Republic through the Bible College and through the local church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.